BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey everybody, it's your talking lady dragon wizard, Holden McNeely. <laughs> I'm flying through the air and I'm fucking shit up with my dragon breath. And it is I, your uh, esteemed Academy Award winner, men- uh, wise mentor figure, Jeremy Irons. How dare you invoke the Bruiser. film this early in the episode? I mean, please, Jake. I'm Jeremy Irons, and I magic is it's all it'll kill you. Whatever you do, don't use magic before you're ready, unless it's the last act of the movie, and you have to heal a dragon with some bullshit. All right, today we're talking about the wonderful. Then it's fine. Book don't use series. the bullshit to heal me. We're, we're talking, use it to heal the dragon. We're talking about the wonderful esteemed book series, Aragon. And the movie. That but is, we're first about of all, the book series Aragon today about a boy and his dragon. No, we are talking about the 2006 whoopsie doodle <laughs> of a major motion picture, the end result of a series of weird events that led to uh, the sexiest woman alive, Rachel Wise, voicing a blue dragon while uh, a lot of bullshit happens. Hold in. This is this topic. Is is a lot. Yes. It's a lot. Aragon is a very divisive thing. Yes. The author, Christopher Paolini, is a very uh, divisive guy. Not in like, you know, the kind of ways that, you know, the Ender's Game guy is divisive. It's just the entire phenomenon of this, like, uh, you know, this wunderkind who was plucked from obscurity, whose, whose gumption led to this multi-majillion dollar franchise, only to have it crash and burn in the uh, box office is just something that is very 2000s. You know, usually we deal with a lot of 80s, 90s nostalgia. This is some millennial cusp uh, memories right now. And um, honestly, watching the movie, uh, if we had gone in blind, I don't know how I would have felt about it, but watching it with all the criticisms, you know, going on Goodreads, going on all these old Tumblr blogs, going on just like all of these... These these now adult uh, tweens of the 2000s that grew up with Aragon kind of seeing it for what it is, is is kind of fascinating. Um, I never thought we'd talk about this book or the movie. It is such a weird footnote. It's so outside of my range. But like just every layer you peel on this just creates this infinite void of rabbit holes to dive further into. I, I just I literally am am overwhelmed but uh, to, to, to quote the opening line, to quote the opening line of the original book. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, 
Wow, you got a lot in your throat there, Jake. What's going on there, huh? lot in that throat. Oh, wow, it's all coming out right now. You can't see it at home, but there's a lot of weird stuff coming out of Jake's throat right now. On a cold, moonlit night, the icy wind that held through the forest carried with it a scent that would change the world. Yeah, dude. Aragon, dude. It fucking rules. <laughs> Honestly, I'm sad I'm this this went missed me. When I was a kid, uh, I think I would have really enjoyed this. Uh, I believe it did. Yeah, it came out a couple years after I graduated. I don't know if I would have gleaned to it, though, um, uh, around. I I just wasn't a fantasy guy until way later. Well, not that much later, until college, till the Lord of the Rings movies dropped. Everybody started reading Tolkien, uh, and I kind of fell in off of that. That was my gateway for sure. So I don't know if I would have discovered Aragon and gotten hype around it, but going back and reading it, I was like, man, if I had found it, I would have been way in. The writing is definitely sucks you in. The world sucks you in. It's 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 really fun, great world building, all that kind of stuff. You know, it it's totally the hero's tale, the chosen one. It's got all of those trappings. But I think especially at that point, like, it's a lot more welcoming than Tolkien, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of its prose, like it's just definitely like a lot less dense. A lot, even though it's four hundred pager, all that good stuff. Um, Longer than Fellowship, yeah, that's crazy. But it's still, you know, it's still it's written by a, a sixteen year old, <laughs> you know, and uh, it, that definitely shines through. And I think that actually works really well for its audience and everything. I think it's a kind of a a really good like baby's first you know hero's journey uh, fantasy tale and and it it's uh, very effective that's what uh, i hear a lot of people talk about is um that yes uh, let's just get it out of the way the plot of the first book in the movie is almost note for note uh the plot of star wars yeah. uh including the uh you know maiden with the macguffin being chased by the uh Black clad enforcer of the evil emperor, yeah. uh, casting it off only to be found by a farm boy whose uncle gets fucking incinerated yeah. by troopers, you know, and and almost like note for note for note along the way. You know, he meets his Obi-Wan. He does. He discovers that he's part of an ancient order of now defunct magical warriors. Uh, you know, it all it all slots in so uh, perfectly that it's it's almost ridiculous. Um, with and the addition of uh, orc-like people and dwarves and elves and you know uh, magical caverns and and ma- and giant castles and big armies, I will say when the dragon does uh, get captured and the next time we see the dragon, she's wearing like a giant, sexy golden <laughs> bikini. I did find that to be a bit derivative in a, in a very obvious and horny way, and and I I don't quite get that. It's all very derivative, but. For a lot of young readers at the time, maybe they didn't like no Star Wars like the back of their hand. Maybe Tolkien was a little bit too much for them. And they found these books absolutely captivating. Uh, married to this also is Paolini's incredibly specific, incredibly American rural upbringing. And a lot of that world building, a lot of that attitude, a lot of that experience is completely flattened by the uh, subsequent movie release. So for me, the experience of Aragon was a seeing these like really unappealing uh, ads and posters for a movie I had no urge to see. I have never felt the dragon's allure. <laughs> I have never wanted. No. It, it feels like a horse girl thing. The dragon 
people, the dragon <laughs> boys, the dragon girls. Like it, there's Well, we all kind of became dragon people with Game of Thrones a little bit. So retroactively. I even hated the dragons in uh, Game of Thrones. It oh, was just Jake, like you've got a heart as stone cold as I mean, unbelievable. I mean, Ebenezer Jake over here. I mean, it's incredible. Don't call me a goddamn Narzak or Sarzak or whatever. <laughs> I don't, I'm I'm more than that. Um, but like I, so like like oh the beautiful flying creature rippling with muscle ride me it's ride me and together wild. we shall be one like blah no <laughs> off putting uh, and I was never listen real facts I'm not a book guy I'm not uh, I, I I don't read a lot of fiction <laughs> yeah 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 I'm like that yeah yeah the most I read is nonfiction usually four topics that I'm actively trying to research for my day job so I was never gonna be an Aragon guy. Uh, but the just the overwhelming howls of Aragon fans, you know, seeing that their their moment to be the next Harry Potter, to be the next Lord of the Rings, for their weird little dragon book to be the next big phenomenon, having that opportunity yeah. wasted for decades. Really fascinating. People bemoaned this movie. Hey, you really hit the nail on the head. I have this similar experience. Like before getting to enjoy Paolini's prose this past week and not enjoying the movie adaptation. All I had known about this book series was kids loved it, and those very same kids on Reddit always derided specifically that film. Anytime there was a Reddit, like, ask Reddit, Mm -hmm. like, what's the worst movie adaptation or just worst movie ever made? Aragon is always up there with Last Airbender, uh, with um, uh, what else Uh, usually gets plopped up there. It's always, like, number if not number one, it's number two or number three. People are so disappointed. <laughs> the original Mario Brothers movie. Yeah, the original Mario Brothers movie. Yeah, we've covered some of this shit already, right, in our show. But yeah, it is always such a fascination to see how let down people were, how successful this should have been, and how angry it made so many people for it to always be on the list. This movie that I don't even remember when it came out. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> and finally getting to go back and watch it and pick it apart and and understand why. And you'll get to hear that. Um, I think probably you already have heard that. I, th- I think our Aragon uh, commentary already came out at this point of the release of this episode. So if you want to go back and listen to us try to figure out what the fuck is going on or why this is so, I mean, it, it, and we'll get to it when we get later into the movie. We'll kind of return to our conversation, but it's just incredibly derivative. It's clearly like cashing in on the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings craze. It's, it's doing a lot of things no, poorly. It was Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings yes. marketed like it was Harry Potter. Yeah. They were thirsty for that YA uh, tie-in, epic fantasy, big buku, big buck payoff. And I mean, actually, the funny thing about it too, Jake, is I didn't realize this till doing the research. It turned a profit in the box office. Oh yeah, it made quite a bit of money in the box office. Obviously, but clearly, you know, it was obviously one of those movies where I one of my favorite lanes in bad movie watching is always like the stinger at the end that sets up for a sequel that never happened. Like, it's always so funny to watch because your mind just immediately starts reeling at, like, what would they have done next? Like, how would this have gone down? But, yeah, like, I guess what I'll say about Aragon is, like, literally nothing is earned. Nothing is earned. Nothing is... 
is uh, nothing is explained. Everything just nothing feels, pays off. Yeah, nothing <laughs> pays off. It's just such a limp noodle of a fantasy tale in every single way. And we'll get to what why that is. But first, let's start with the books because you know, people do love these books. And I could tell. I, I obviously it's a four hundred page book. I wasn't able to like read the whole thing. But just based off of the little bit that I read, I could tell that this was a competent fiction narrative that does does its job that, you know, is a big deal still. Like I was at Barnes & Noble last Saturday and the, it was prominently displayed in the like YA fantasy section, you know. Also, just to see how far YA has come mm. since, uh, you know, the time of even Aragon is pretty exciting. Like, there's yeah, so Yeah, it's not the much. Hardy Boys anymore. Yeah, there's so much there. It's kind of incredible. There's, uh, I mean, the fact that there was a fantasy YA section, you know, and uh, separate from, like, other, you know, other YA sections was pretty impressive. So, it really, I think, helped push the genre forward as well, uh, which is very, very cool. But anyways, Aragon is the first book of the inheritance cycle it consists of four books total aragon eldest brisinger and inheritance uh the latter of which famously not a trilogy famously <laughs> not a trilogy yeah it was th- that was you know uh, not famously though how many times literally every fantasy book i've ever read except for the lord of the rings trilogy the author always has to go oh i can't get it done in <laughs> The amount I said I'd get it done in, so now it's going to be at least, you know, now it's going to be two more books. Um, And then they start doing that with the movies as well, which is probably what they should have done with the Aragon movie. Because I think another thing that really makes it suffer is they just try to pack like way too much into an hour and a half long movie, which is just completely impossible. It was written by Christopher Paolini Uh, when he was a teenager. uh, It became a hit after a couple of years of hitting the streets and really trying to sell the shit out of this thing. That's going to be it's a very interesting part of the story. Okay, so. So are we getting into it? Because the uh, pa- pa- Paolini, Paolini, I, I've heard both, um, is a really fascinating figure. His family is fascinating. And how this book kind of came to be is uh, a very uniquely American story. Absolutely. Because uh, Paolini grew up in Montana. Uh, he uh, describes his childhood as, you know, I grew up hiking and camping in the mountains and playing alongside the Yellowstone River. I made my own bows and arrows in the mountains. I found fossils of small creatures. I once found a handmade musket ball buried inside the trunk of a tree. Uh, One time when camping uh, with my great uncle and my sister, we ran into a brown bear and I realized that we are not the top of the food chain. And uh, the reason why he had so much time to himself is that uh, his mother was uh, homeschooled him. In the style of uh, the Montessori school. Yeah, I can actually talk quite a bit about this. Winnie's been doing some Montessori classes. She's going to probably do some full-time Montessori classes next year. She's a little too young. She just started dabbling. And Montessori is a really interesting thing that uh, is, is more for earlier child development. But the big tenant of Montessori is let the child lead Mm -hmm. with their interests and what they want to do. So you essentially, like, in a normal classroom for Montessori, you have all these different stations with all these different toy types and interactivity types, and you just let the child, you follow the child and and try to keep them honed in on one activity at a time. So the all I but so it's very like simple and very like kind of zen in this way. Like we will, you take out a little piece of rug, you put it down, you place your 
activity on top of it. You interact with it. And then the second Winnie wants to like do something else before she just goes and grabs something else, we say, okay, we can move on to the next thing, but we have to pack this one up and put it away on its shelf and then grab the other simple activity and bring it out. And um, you really like let them inform the 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 educational experience the play experience and it's very beautiful and it leads to a lot of independence mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, ability to kind of create their own play and uh just be able to kind of like very calmly like like I was like felt like in a way I was like am I in like a weird cult the first time we visited the school because it was so shocking to see a large amount of children all very quietly, like peacefully enjoying these different activities, whether it's like potting plants or doing art or like playing or doing puzzles. Like it was just kind of crazy to witness my first go with it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio and Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So Montessori schools in my head are associated with a lot of like hippy dippy communes Mm -hmm. and like hipster parents and stuff. Whereas the way that uh, Christopher ended up uh, coming to this style of education is actually from a radically different place. Because you see his parents, Kenneth and Talita, were actually members of a uh, a neo uh, modern new religion that was prominent throughout the 60s into the 80s and 90s called the Church Universal and Triumphant, which was a uh, kind of offshoot of the uh, beliefs of Theosophony and the I Am Church movement uh, originating as the Summit Lighthouse. And this is a in, I, I could barely scratch the surface of this. America is full of neo-religious movements. If you look into a lot of the uh, Aragon kind of like uh, mainstream just wisdom, they'll say that he was a homeschooled Mormon kid. This goes way beyond like mm. th- compared to uh, the church universal and triumphant Mormonism looks like fucking Presbyterianism. Like this is some out there shit. And by the time uh, Christopher was uh, a child, the cult, it's very cult-like. It was a a target of anti-cult legislation and anti-cult actions. They had entered by the 80s, colloquially known as The Cut, entered this full paranoid survivalist kind of um, uh, mindset where they were interested in building bomb shelters and there was uh, their prophet or at least their leader at the time, named Elizabeth Clare Prophet, claimed that the Soviet Union was going to nuke the United States at any given second, and that the uh, famous liberalization and glasnost of Mikhail Gorbachev was a propaganda front, and that the nukes were going to hit any day now. So this sect actually advocated for Montessori-style homeschooling to keep them free from indoctrination 
from the uh, mainstream culture that was undermining them and trying to keep them away from the teachings of their founders. There's a lot of belief in like the ascended masters, which is this insane uh, kind of uh, belief that like church leaders can talk to people that have like elevated and kind of uh, gone beyond their humanity. And the idea is to become an ascended master yourself. So that like it, in order to teach your children to become these like renaissance men, these like higher intellects, these self-sufficient warriors for the teachings, the result of all this kind of this independence, this 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 uh, intensity, this 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 just incredibly unique upbringing is that by age 15, Christopher uh, had already been an accredited high school graduate through correspondence courses. And according to the lore, at age 15, as part, you know, what does this, you know, what does this Renaissance man do? I've already, I, I know my way around the woods. I have learned the ways of the arts and sciences. I want to write a book. At age 15, he sits down and says, I want to write a book. And he works for a year, claiming to spend the entire time in his room, taking breaks only for meals and exercise. And a year later, he emerges with the first draft of Aragon. Man, we're jumping. What? <laughs> I've got some stuff a little before that. Oh, okay, that. go for it. <laughs> also, real quick, I uh, uh, want to say this a while ago. The dragon is Gorbachev, uh, and people don't know that that is actually a big part of the books. Uh, that's right, Safira is actually Gorbachev, and uh, everything is really just a masked Cold War that, analogy well, the, I, the entire mm, thing. It's actually, I, I was looking for some, like, <laughs> crypto weirdness in the story, and even the idea of, like, Aragon, our main character, does live this life of, like, pastoral seclusion away from the great politics and events of the greater world kind of mirrors Christopher's own childhood, mm. where, like, he's being told that there's this, like, cosmic war between eternal forces happening but really he's just going out and skipping stones by the river and like watching star wars like on a vhs like he doesn't know but the idea that like someday he will have to rise and actually like change the world i i feel like maybe is it then i thought you know the galbatorix the evil king emperor guy john malkovich in the movie uh, the conscription, hmm. the idea that like they're taking unwilling, uh, you know, pure villagers and turning them into his dark army was like some kind of message that was added purely by the screenwriter and director. So that not even yeah. that's like an angle to well, it. Well, they changed a lot of bullshit. That's a lot of the criticism for the movie. Well, going back a little bit before he writes the book, um, he, he had this to write about his relationship with reading at a young age, very writerly. He, he, he I believe is in like his blog or something. I hate to read, cried the little boy obstinately. I don't see why I have to learn this. I'm never going to use it. That's what I said nearly 15 years ago when mom was teaching me how to read. Back then, I knew that reading wasn't part of my world, and I knew that it was just a waste of time. Mom was patient, though, and carefully guided me until I could read simple words. Then she took me to the library, and that is where he found his passion. He said, in the library, hidden in the children's section, was a series of short mystery novels. Attracted uh, by their covers, I took one home and read it eagerly. I discovered another world, peopled with interesting characters facing compelling situations. In fact, I still remember what the book was about. It involved tomato sauce being mistaken for blood. 
From then on, I've been in love with the written word. Instead of toys, my room is filled with books. They're piled under my bed, on the floor, by my pillow, and overflow into the rest of the house. When we go into town, the only places I want to visit are the libraries, bookstores, and occasionally an art museum. And of course, the works of Tolkien was a huge influence on Paolini, along with Ursula K. Le Guin's Earth Sea Cycle. But one book had a direct influence on Paolini's inheritance cycle. He's, he wrote, there was a book called Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher by Bruce Koval. And it's a lovely young adult book about a young man in the real world who goes into this antique shop and finds a stone that he buys. And of course, that stone ends up being a dragon egg and a dragon hatches for him. That had an effect on me. Uh, you think? That's the plot <laughs> of your book. And that's why I wrote The Inheritance Cycle, because I became obsessed with that, that idea of a boy finding a dragon egg. Then Paolini felt he might try his hand at writing stories himself. In order to do so, he ended up reading college-level courses and was shown the ropes on stuff like plot structure and descriptions. Paolini said, I know that I could not have written Aragon if I had gone to a public school system because I would have just been too busy attending classes and doing homework. I wouldn't have had time to write. So he does say like this was... Good for him. He champions homeschooling for sure. And so uh, he also said, when I graduated from high school, I wanted to write a pure dyed-in-the-wool hero story. So I immediately plotted out a trilogy based on my ideas of the archetypal maturation plot. Uh, Paolini is and has always been the type of writer. He outlines everything. He works the whole story out and he writes the rough draft. He talks about, you know, there is such a different approach. And I, I even learned this in my like screenplay classes. You know, there are people who beat out the whole thing. They figure out every little bit and then they go in and they fill it. You know, they do the dialogue and the action and everything. There's also people who discover it by writing. So they just start writing scenes and just try to come up, you know, and the way he says, the way he tells it, he, he prefers this style because doing the other style involves a lot of drafting and drafting, drafting, drafting until you even know what you have. And he kind of likes to have the whole thing like kind of done in his brain before he sits down to write the rough draft so he can just start working on the doing the editing process to refine what he's got as opposed to still trying to find what he's got. I like that you mentioned uh, the college courses on like how you lay out uh, descriptions and stuff, mm -hmm. because a lot of the first Aragon book has some real like 15 year old just read how to describe a scene yes. scene descriptions. Yes, totally. Yeah, he uh, he said about the outlines and everything. He said, I think it's because my brain can only do so many things at once. And when I'm writing, I'm so consumed by thoughts of what the characters are feeling, what the scene itself is doing, what the pacing is like, what the language is, what I'm trying to accomplish with the language, that I don't have any processing power to plot. I don't have processing power to think about the social implications of whatever is going on. And that's not to say that I don't invent things as I write. I do quite a few things. But I'd say I need at least 80 to 90% in place before I go in if I'm hoping to write a clean first draft. He also said, I tried writing stories before Aragon, and I always hit a wall after about five or six pages because I didn't have a plot. What I had was an inciting incident, like, boy finds dragon egg. Great. That's not a story. That's one event. What happens after that? And what does it mean to the characters? That's a story. Uh, he did also do a lot of research on Old Norse, German, Anglo-Saxon, and Russian myth, using a lot of language from that time in his work. And the other big pull for those descriptions Jake just mentioned was definitely the Montana wilderness around him. And I think he's definitely like 
reading those textbooks and then going outside and going on hikes and being, you know, I'm just going to guess like heavily armed, you know what I mean, to the T. Uh, I'm guessing these are these are preppers, right? So I'm guessing he's going out. He's getting skins of squirrels or something like that, making condoms out of. I don't know what they do out there. All right, they're they're odd, terrifying people. But while he's doing that weird stuff that those people do, he's really observing that environment and putting it all into the books. Just for the sake of fairness, I know I, I really uh, got off on a weird tangent about uh, their weird church that they grew up with. But uh, in the intervening years, uh, Paolini's parents have left that movement and actually recently published a uh, a self-published book, would you believe it, called uh, 400 Years of Imaginary Friends, where they actually break down the world of ascended masters, adepts, uh, mess- you know, messianic messengers and the way that they draw people in. And it kind of it kind of breaks down how these cults function and their history. And it's it seems like they are 100 percent out of that like uh, mindset, out of that movement. Well, I mean, but if they're making condoms out of squirrel skins, Jake, I mean, I got I have to be a little uh, worried. Uh, right? But you're right about uh <laughs> It really is, I think, Paolini's uh, outdoorsy childhood Mm -hmm. that gave a lot of the books a very uh, real legitimacy to a lot of young readers. Uh, uh, He uh, explains that uh, he took a trip to the Carlsbad Caverns, and that was uh, what inspired the uh, dwarven fortress of Farthendur, you know, inside the volcanic crater deep inside the Beor Mountains. Jake, you know if you utter those elvish words too many times, you'll be sucked (laughs) through a portal, all right? Brissinger! Stop I I declare Brissinger! Jake, Jake, please, don't! I I want you to keep Don't make me say it again! Okay, I I can't lose you! Oh my god, (laughs) I see a rift behind you! Oh no! Oh, my God, there's a squirrel skin condom floating behind your head. Um, All right, I'm going to drop the squirrel skin condom bit, but I am just having fun with that phrase. It's very fun. (laughs) I have to use marmot size because I'm a girthier gentleman. All right, please. That's enough girth talk, all right? Come on, Zaragon. So, yeah, going back to where where Jake left off, so he writes the shit out of this book. He's 15 years old. Mm. He writes this rough draft. But, of course, it's a giant fantasy tome. So he spends a whole nother, I believe, two years even editing it, going back, reworking it. Um, He even says, like, he wish he had done more studying in in grammar Mm. because uh, he would have had a lot less rewriting to do if he had just learned some very simple things, uh, some simple corrections going into it. I mean, he's, he's... he is figuring this whole thing out as you go along. I don't know how this makes me feel about homeschooling, too. I feel like, I feel like, is it the kind of thing where if you get lucky and you have the right kid like this kid who is really just a prime mind for homeschooling, yes, you'll have someone who is, uh, I'm guessing he was a millionaire by the time he was 20, 21 years old. Right. Or, or I think least. it was 500. Uh, 500 K was the random house of uh, advance he got for the trilogy. Sure. So, yeah, he's at least a working professional writer, you know, that's doing well. I don't know if that's always the case, but it's a very compelling argument, this whole thing for homeschool. Well, if I mean, Holden, if you want to see what happens to most teenagers, that decide to take up writing, you can go look up Archive of Our Own right now. And it's mostly horny weirdness about 
uh, the uh, about the brothers from Supernatural, as well as uh, various uh, scenarios in which all of BTS enslave a woman. <laughs> oh my God, we got to keep it moving. Then I can't stay in this realm too long. Uh, so Paolini's parents decide to self-publish the book under their already established indie publishing company. This is a big thing. This yeah, is not, a thing. Yeah, is uh. The, again, in the mainstream saga, he this book kind of like emerged from him magically, fully formed at age 15. Not true. It took years of revisions. He was closer to 17, 18 when it was like actually ready to be published. Uh, and, you know, his parents did have their own publishing imprint. They did self-publish books before, probably about uh, theological matters. Uh, I couldn't find anything about their original books. Uh, that's how I found their most recent book, uh, was looking for that. But, you know, they had gone through the process before. So it's not like they the family went in blindly into the prospect of publishing. Um, and uh, are you going to and but the I guess the difference was uh, he learned very quickly how you got to press the flesh. You yeah. got to fake it till you make it. You got to sell the shit out of your self-published book if you're going to sell a self-published book. Well, one small detail that I forgot to mention was like, just to give you a little more understanding of the mother in this whole situation. She, I believe they already had established Paolini International LLC. Right. Because she had already self-published some books about child development. Mm -hmm. And that was her whole thing. So that's like what she's into is child development stuff and and so I think that's how we get to a Christopher Pellini like with I don't think we get that without his mother right um and so they self-publish and then they go on a tour of over 135 schools and libraries Christopher and there's a picture of this by the way and it's very cute and he looks like such a dork and I'm so surprised he didn't get pantsed everywhere he went doing this he would wear a uh, medieval costume consisting of a, a red billowy shirt black pants lace-up boots and a black uh, a black hat, floppy hat you know he looked like a Ren Faire dude and he's, he's surrounded by his own books uh, I he even uh, the original cover was just the eye of um, oh, I'm always going to forget her name. So Safira, I want to say Serafina, <laughs> but I know that that is not correct of Safira. He sell, he drew that himself, uh, not the cover you see today, but but he, he you know that that's how like you know cobbled together this is, a and he's just going around and he's just really doing that thing, man. He's grinding it out. Uh, Paolini said, "My family and I sort of bet the house on trying to make a go of it, self publishing. And if the book had taken a couple more months to turn a profit, we were literally going to have to sell our house and just move to a city and get any jobs we could. I postponed college for it. I went for." being homeschooled and living in an extremely rural environment to traveling around and doing two to three one hour long presentations every single day in schools for months on end and I don't I don't I can't believe that they even did this because how this all came to work out for them was so random <laughs> it all came down to popular novelist Carl Hyacin you might you might you've probably seen a couple of his books on your parents bookshelf if they're readers uh he's I did sick puppy I remember being a big one that my dad oh skinny super dip skinny dip was everywhere yes that, that one as I, well. that cover is iconic it's he, he writes a lot of like comedy fiction type stuff um he and uh discovered the book loved it and recommended it to his editor at random house oh it's uh I mean this this story is legendary. That uh, Carl Hyacin was taking a trip through Montana 
and at a local bookstore saw this like weird self-published book with this giant dragon eyeball on it and picked it up, gave it to his stepson, I believe. And who was like real complaining throughout the road trip because what stepson would want to go on a road trip through Montana. Right. And uh, handed to him. It was like, hey, tell me if this is any good. And as he was driving, he was shocked to see that his stepson was just completely quiet, completely engrossed with this book. He says that every time he looked over to make sure that his son was like still breathing, his nose was just buried in this self-published Aragon copy. And it was kind of amazing. At the, at the end of the trip, he said, honestly, the night you gave me that book, I was planning on setting the motel room on fire <laughs> with you in it. And instead, I like this dragon book so much. I'm not I'm not going to fucking kill you in your sleep. Come on. We only got a couple thousand <laughs> miles till Butte. Get a leg up. Oh, my God. Not Butte. Jesus. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. And that's when he had his contacts at Random House be like, hey, you should check this out. Yeah. Paolini gets an email from his soon to be editor, Michelle Frey, in late 2002 after a long day of selling books at the Northwest Book Fest in Seattle, which read, I'm writing regarding your novel, Aragon, which I I recently read and enjoyed immensely. The story is gripping, the description's beautiful, and the character's well-drawn. And it ended with an offer to publish via Random House Knopf. I mean, how the fuck does that happen? That is so rare and incredible. Paolini said it was perfect timing because our home had turned into a book warehouse, and we could not take sales to the next level without duplicating the process a large publisher uses, the distribution system, the marketing, the promotion. Although we had concerns about losing control over a book that my family and I had labored over for so long, the folks at Random House Children's Division showed us that they would give the book the attention we hoped for. Fortunately, it worked out wonderfully for both of us, and I couldn't ask for a better home for the inheritance cycle. I mean, this is some, like, Taylor Swift shit. I don't even understand this as a father. Like, how much sacrifice his parents gave to, of their own lives to, to make him a success at such a young age. And having faith in his work at such a young age. This is his first book. If my kid wrote, for their first book, wrote the first part of a trilogy of a giant fantasy novel, I'd have some concerns. I'd be a little, I'd be like, why don't you start with like a short story or something? You know what I mean? I mean, I would definitely not just be like, all right, fine. You know what we should do? Bet, literally bet our house on it. <laughs> Let's bet the whole house on you becoming a massive fantasy author. I mean, to be fair, it was a Montana house on what I can only assume was a compound. Yeah, so I mean, sure. It's not it like they were made out of like snail goo <laughs> and fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even thatch thatch <laughs> dried leaves. Yeah, dried leaves, and you know, with some poo poo on them. As you you know, they don't have good plumbing out there. Uh, but regardless, Aragon takes off via Random House in 2003, which makes Christopher Paolini a highly successful author at the age of 20. He didn't notice much of a change. Uh, however, except the money was good and meant he was officially a professional writer. And from time to time, he'd do events where he got to meet throngs of fans and see the impact of his work. But other than that, he's living in Montana. He's working at home, living a very simple life and just kind of able to do what he wants to do. But he's clearly a natural in terms of the work ethic, you know, uh, and we'll talk about his uh, uh, approach to work. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it right now. I mean, he really, uh, this takes a lot of self-control and is not for everyone. He said, I view writing as a job, so I sit down every day and work a certain amount every day, whether or not I feel like it. Though, if I'm actually sick, I will take time off. 
If you want to be a professional writer, then you need to write consistently. Inspiration strikes about once every blue moon, which for me is once every two and a half to three months, which is when I'll get really and truly inspired about something. That's not to say I don't love what I'm working on on a day-to-day basis, but I mean that sort of white-hot fever of intensity of creation that sometimes strikes. That doesn't occur all the time, so you need to be able to work even when that's not driving you forward. But it's not just sitting down and writing that makes one a pro, according to Paolini. He also wrote, just writing a lot doesn't necessarily make you a better writer. You have to hear yourself as a writer. And the best way to do that is to read your own writing out loud. Then you'll be able to hear things that sound wrong. I think uh, I learned most from editing, both editing myself and having someone else edit me. It's not always easy to have someone criticize your work, your baby, but if you can swallow your ego, you can really learn from the editing. Those two things are so hard to do. The first one where you just treat it like a job and even though even on your the days you have the least amount of inspiration, you sit down and you do the work. That is so hard to do. And then on top of that, you you have an ability to understand your work to a, a level that you are able to accept criticism from others to make it better. I think those are the two hardest dilemmas for for writers just everywhere. Is is having that work ethic and having that ability to like kill your babies, to like let someone rip your shit apart, you know, and uh, and and not look at it as like a deep insult. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the New York Times, Liz Rosenberg has a uh, fairly iconic uh, review of the first Aragon book, pointing out the author's uh, incredibly uh, unconventional story. Young author, homeschooled, began writing the trilogy at 15, sold it to Alfred Knopf for a large advance. It's a real Cinderella story, one that makes J.K. Rowling's experience with Harry Potter seem uh, modest. Uh, She then goes on to say uh, he often slips into cliche descriptions, quote, his tan skin rippled with lean muscles or B-movie dialogue. Boy, roared Brom, you demand answers with an insolence rarely seen. His prose can be awkward and gangly. The plot stumbles and jerks along with gaps in logic and characters dropped, then suddenly remembered or new ones invented at the last minute. And yet, as Beatrix Potter wrote, Genius, like murder, will out. Aragon, for all its flaws, is an authentic work of great talent. Mm. The story is gripping. It may move awkwardly, but it moves with force. The power of Aragon lies in its overall effects, in the sweep of the story and the conviction of its storyteller. So, like, people are, like, they see the flaws. They understand, like, that it's it's a, this is a weird egg of a book. <laughs> But ah, they they, but they understand he's got the juice. Yeah. He's got the juice. He's so young. 
So yeah, he moves on to his next book in the series. He had originally envisioned a trilogy for the story, so he set out to write Eldest, which would get published in 2005. Uh, Paolini said, With Eldest, I was very much aware that there was now an audience for the book, and I needed and wanted to improve my writing skills. So I made a conscious effort to do that. The greatest disadvantage that a young writer has is their lack of experience, and unfortunately, there's no easy fix to that aside from just living. The advantage that a young writer has is their youthful enthusiasm, energy, and I would even say ignorance. Because if you don't know how difficult a challenge is, you might actually be more willing to jump in and tackle it and learn by doing. And it's definitely, this book is so the Empire Strikes Back of the series. There's a big heel turn. There's a family reveal. There's a dark ending for our hero. They don't exactly like win in the end. Mm-hmm. It's it's that it's that dark turn. I feel like um, there's a lot of like Fellowship of the Ring in the first book. There's a lot of Star Wars, I think, in the second book, in my opinion. There's a lot of Star Wars everywhere, yeah. man. It's it's uh God, it's, up it's you know I don't have to I mean I will, but if you go to Goodreads, uh, which is a famous uh, book review site where lots of people do it, um like the the there's just so many uh just one to ones with like other stuff. Even you know uh there's the 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 evil king sends a bunch of spooky uh flying immortal uh hunters after our main hero uh in Lord of the Rings it's Ringwraiths in Aragon it's the Razak uh you know there's uh Aragon's love interest is the daughter of an elf king named Arya in Lord of the Rings it's Arwen also the daughter of an elf king i mean it's it, there's the, i i think i already mentioned it but like just note for like literally uh, his big his big idea with his magical mentor trying to get him in touch with the rebel army only to have a big showdown in a fortress like it all. Just, I mean, but Jake, please, just, if you, have you ever met an elf king's daughter? I mean, they are smoke shows, <laughs> dude. I mean, you'd fall in love just as easily. We're all baddie for elf king daughters. I mean, I had to I had to, to I had to totally force myself to never meet one again. Uh, so I totally get it. Yeah, it is. It is. Pretty, pretty, um, how does he get away with that? How, do, what do you think? It's just because it's, it's, it's for kids. Mm-hmm. It's maybe kids who haven't seen Star Wars. Or yes. Maybe they just don't care about yes. the one-to-one on that. If I mean, the, you know, the, anybody who picked up Aragon and loved it at the time back in 2003, 2004. Yeah. Let's think about the time period, right? Star Wars wasn't like Star Wars again. Yeah. It was kind of dead. At that time, I, I mean, right? the prequels that were coming out, but That's people what I'm saying, weren't like, like the prequels. But, you know, TV tropes out. didn't exist. The internet hadn't like built a cottage industry out of like uh, finding, codifying, and listing tropes. Like it's and all... if anything, people are really hype about fantasy stuff at this point because of Peter, the Lord of the Rings trilogy hitting movie theaters. Is that was all happening? Like oh, during the time of the first book coming out, essentially. Oh no, the the besides the House. you know whatever the serendipitous like uh, you know uh, compass of fate led us to this cultural moment where like a random uh, Florida crime author found his book in a random shop. Uh, from a from a marketing perspective, from a capitalist perspective, the publishing industry and the movie industry needed Aragon to exist. It needed. Uh, an author with like this amazing rags to riches story. It needed a YA, like it's a book that you can give to your kids who you just desperately want them to read books. It it has fantasy. It has Star Wars. It has magic. And this was a time where, yeah, 
the Star Wars prequels, the Lord of the Rings movies, Harry Potter, we're all making gagillion dollars. So, like, there's a reason why when it was time for 20th Century Fox to throw their hat in the ring, Aragon was the perfect choice. They were, you know, they fast-tracked this thing. The, it was lightning in a bottle. They had to strike while the iron is hot and all the other cliches that is like, need money now, make money, this thing, make money. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. I, I didn't even think about the timing as much for these books and how perfect that was. I, it really, um, and and so, so therefore it's even more frustrating to see how poorly the movie was treated, you know? it's 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 always, it's really the talk right now as Barbie became such a huge hit in movie theaters. So now I already saw a list of all the board games and, or not board games, all the toys that are being turned into movies. Mm -hmm. already, like already, like huge deals are being made right now around toy properties, just totally not getting the message of Barbie that like maybe there's just a huge audience for, for movies made by women for women mm -hmm. or there's a really interest. There are really interesting cultural conversations to have around certain properties, certain IPs mm -hmm. that existed throughout our ch childhood and at different points in our lives. Like, no, no, we just need. I think we can actually let's make a GI Joe movie, but we'll make it like more toy like, <laughs> or let's do Hot Wheels. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like that. It's just man, it's gonna be fun to watch all these bombs. Yes. I can't. I'm kind of excited for like the. It's gonna be like Oppenheimer all over, dude. We're just gonna have bombs <laughs> in the box office, just uh, just left it right the next couple of years because of the success of Barbie. But uh, it's it's like Hollywood learned the wrong lesson mm -hmm. too going into making Aragon like from what from the success of Lord of the Rings. Like no no no, you need like really good people who have a deep love of the original work that are going to like painstakingly figure out how to adapt it into a film and we're going to need multiple movies to tell the story or at least we need a movie that's at, that's at least two and a half hours long to tell the story of the first book, yada, yada, yada. But even they even learned the wrong lesson on Lord of the Rings when they turned The Hobbit into a three-movie deal. So, you know, what do they know? Uh, nothing, apparently. So now we've got Brisinger published in 2008 and Inheritance published in 2011. Uh, in these books, the scope of the conflict broadens over large regions and kingdoms. A final epic battle takes place to wrap the whole thing up. And of course, there was supposed to be one book. Paolini, good on him though. He not only realized he had too much for one book, but he actually wrote both books. Mm. So good for him. <laughs> Are you throwing shade at one George R.R. Martin? And Is that one what you're Patrick doing? Rothfuss. I'm throwing mm. shade at both fantasy novelists that I fell in love with their their series, and then they refused to finish it. <laughs> uh, yeah, unbelievable. So, in uh, as Paolini said, the last book definitely posed some creative challenges as well. Just the characters change a lot in the last book. There are some technical writing challenges in the last book, and of course, there's the sheer size of the novel. It's bigger than any of the previous books, which are substantial. Inheritance is well over 100 pages longer than the uh, last book. So that in and of itself was a challenge, just getting through that many pages and that many words. But it's, it definitely wraps the whole thing up. Uh, not fully, uh, not, not, not enough to not come out with a new book, actually. I believe he's working on a new book set in the world of uh, Aragon. Um, I'm sorry, what's the weird name for it? Astelnia. Anesthesia, I could never pronounce it. It makes my <laughs> head hurt every time I look at it. Yeah, and, and that's really fun, and it's cool that he keeps getting to play in that world. But, I mean, how wild is that? He started writing the book, 
what was it, 2001, I want to say, something like that, maybe 2000, and spent a decade finishing his story. And I think that's also really impressive for a young writer who experiences fame and success quite quickly, uh, considering all things, uh, to, to sit down and still arduously go through and finish that whole story is incredibly impressive. And uh, what uh, is equally as impressive is how shitty the movie is. Should we talk about it, Jake? Is it time to get into it? We got to talk about the movie. Uh, Supposedly, Christopher uh, was hanging out in a Seattle area bookstore when he got a call from his parents saying that Fox had expressed an interest in acquiring the film rights for Aragon. It looked like a good offer, and we agreed to it. It was quite a coincidence because this was the same bookstore that he was uh, he originally got his uh, publishing offer, oddly enough. The movie was uh, was picked up by Fox's 2000 division. They had purchased the rights and uh, Fox 2000 president Elizabeth Gabler and creative executive Rodney Farrell also picked it up. Uh, Aragon was then put on the fast track to production. One of the earliest decisions was seemingly a risky one as the studio decided to entrust the franchise to a first-time director, Industrial Light and Magic visual effects supervisor, Stefan Fangmeier. Yeah, this is like the opposite. And this, I feel like, maybe doomed them. Yeah, well, also the writer. Why did they assign the screenplay to Peter Buckman, whose only previous credit was Jurassic Park 3, which was a giant bomb, right? I mean, well, it was the at least- screenplay actually was uh, a the subject to a massive, massive uh, WGA uh, negotiation. There were actually like four people all vying for that written by credit, and uh, I don't know what it was. I, you know, it's right. I guess he had the best lawyer. I should say, yeah, whoever has the best lawyer wins arbitration. So it's not like necessarily all him. So who knows? Who all was involved in in had had who who knows who had the most to do with that script? But yeah, going back to Stefan Fangmeyer, uh, yeah, it's kind of an opposite John Wick. You know, I feel like John Wick was this amazing story of these fight choreo guys that finally got to their shot at directing a movie and they fucking killed it and you know brought all their knowledge of fight choreography and like turned turned it around into this like amazing filmic experience whereas uh Stefan yeah I think that the it had the opposite effect he wasn't ready for a full directorial debut he was a great visual effects guy he, hey he worked on tons of stuff like Saving Private Ryan Twister Terminator 2 and was a second unit director on two films Dreamcatcher and Galaxy Quest shout outs to another episode we've done uh, about a awesome movie well you know there is a uh there's a little bit of uh kind of a st- you know you get someone who is you know uh i'm thinking of like james cameron was a special effects uh-huh. guy before he became a director peter jackson dabbled in the industry a lot of like practical effects guys end up becoming directors and so in a movie that was going to be so cg reliant especially with uh what you know way to workshop was doing with lord of the rings you know, if Gollum was making headlines for like uh, performance, you know, digital actors on screen, they needed a VFX guy, a digital guy to make the 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 basically marquee character, Sephira the Dragon, uh, as realistic and effective as possible. And I feel like for all the criticisms the movie has, especially for a 2006 movie, that dragon looks damn good. Yeah, dragon looks good. I don't I don't really I was surprised it. How 
Yeah, it's really so much more of it. The effects w- were not the issue for sure. Uh, I, I mean, it was really so much more about everything they changed, everything they cut, everything that they gloss over. You know, it's it's all the the big issue people have. So, like, not only are fans of the books disappointed because they change too much and they gloss over too much, but like also. After doing that, anybody who w- weren't familiar with the books, they just get nothing. It's just dead inside. Like we don't a bit. A great example is like so much of the book is about um, Aragon, the boy, and his dragon uh, bonding when the dragon is young mm-hmm. and going through all these different experiences together and becoming these like incredibly tight friends through like him raising up this dragon. We get none of that in the movie. In the director's commentary, Fangmeyer brings up the fact that in the movie, Safira just like uh, gets struck by lightning and just becomes a full grown adult within yeah. like a couple days of the egg hatching. And uh, he explains that with the Narzak, the Sarzak, Barzak, I forget, this, the, the not ring wraiths on him, uh, it would be, uh, it would counteract the imminent threat that he's being hunted. If they then just had a month of backstory happening. And so he wanted to keep the movie moving. There's, I actually found the uh, making, it's called Mythic Vision, the making of Aragon, the official making of book uh, on Internet Archive through their like uh, constantly legally dubious library system. And there's a weirdly uh, foreboding quote or ironic quote, I'd say, from one of the producers, Wick Godfrey who says, uh, this is a universal story about a boy who comes from nothing and realizes he's the most pivotal character in the entire kingdom, which is great wish fulfillment for kids growing up. Everyone wants to feel like they're destined for something great. So you want to bring in a filmmaker who has a specific vision that can coincide with the vision of what is in the book. Stefan Fangmeier had that. He came in with a very strong vision of this world. It wasn't Harry Potter. It wasn't Lord of the Rings. It was the world of Aragon. Bullshit. Yeah. This movie looks so generic. This movie looks it's so, so der- and derivative. Uh, they filmed it in Hungary and Slovakia, clearly to save money. All those Eastern European nations have huge tax incentives uh, to film there. Uh, it is nowhere near like the setting is nowhere near as splendid as yeah. New Zealand through the eye of uh, Peter Jackson. There's so many quotes where they talk about like they wanted everything that they didn't have to do digitally in camera. They wanted a sense of place when the movie is full of just generic forest backdrops. Yeah. Completely like really shitty matte paintings. And it feels like what happened. And I don't know if this is true. But ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, is a really expensive effects house where and they had like they were basically doing a favor to one of their own taking on this movie. And they just did not have the zeal or the uh, kind of motivation to knock it out of the park that uh, Weta Workshop had with The Lord of the Rings. Because now they're basically on the same tier as ILM in terms of like digital effects houses. But it's just... Uh, there was horrible weather dur- during the shoot. Uh, there was just so many decisions. How about, how about this? How about this? You know, when it comes to Lord of the Rings, decades and decades have passed since it was written. And artists have been so inspired by mm-hmm. its words that they've sat down and they've recreated through countless drawings all these different, the Elvish 
you know, Rivendell and every, you know, Gondor, like, I mean, there's just so many artistic recreations that going into it, they had like all this wealth and, and even hired the, those, some of those artists to work on the film and bring these like storied, incredible places to life that's been in people's heads for years and years now. But Aragon doesn't really have that world, right? Like, he built a really cool world, and people are still, like, starting to fill it out and understand and explore it more. The baffling part, though, is that not only do they not, like, try to make these breathtaking towns and things like that, but they even, like, made them way smaller. Mm -hmm. They made everything duller. In fact, like... One of the craziest things there's the, the is the lack of dwarfs, elves, and orgals in the movie. Wait, wait, there are orgals in the movie, but they're not fr- like the ones in the book. They're not these horrific because th- if you also think about like how scary the orcs are in Lord of the Rings and how like whoa, like when they hit the scene in those movies, like you're really kind of they're freaky, man, and they're like monsters and they're terrifying. You know the orgals, they just we're supposed to be these horned beasts. If you look up a drawing of an Urgal, U-R-G-A-L, uh, from Aragon, I mean, they're, they're, they have these huge ram horns and they're like orc-like and horrific and monsters. And in the movie, they're just these like gross dudes with shoe polish on their faces. I mean, it really is so underwhelming, you know, that, that and such a great example of how they just dulled down every aspect of this world for the film. No, there are they're in a dwarven village and there are characters that book readers know are dwarves and they're just like random guys with like average beards. Uh Arya are like our big uh romantic interest who uh in the book is like passed out through a large majority of the book. Uh is supposed to be this elf and like I don't even think she has the ears. Like it's really weird. There's also this this uh, the outfits people have commented on the outfits that there's like characters wearing jeans throughout the book throughout the movie. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. And uh, there is actually uh, they actually got a costume designer named Kim Barrett, who had worked on The Matrix and Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. And her costumes for Aragon were supposedly supposed to have a technological edge. It was supposed to look sleek and cool to make it stand out from Lord of the Rings. But basically, you just had a bunch of peasants in jeans. It does not work at all. Mm-hmm. The cast itself is just a massive upset. Um, uh, famously, this is uh, this is Ed Speller, Spellier's first movie. Uh, he literally was just he just starred in like school plays at his boarding school. Before this, wow. he was one of thousands of potential Aragons. And in the making of book, hearing the producers and the directors talk about him, considering his very, very underwhelming performance in the movie. Uh, this is still Wick Godfrey, one of the producers saying we had to find the perfect kid. The whole movie lives or dies trying to capture the character you've read about in the book. It was the kind of role that needed to be embodied by someone who was a bit of an innocent, didn't have a lot of experience in the world. We wanted someone who was a bit raw, who hadn't been in a lot of movies, who could grow into the role. So the actor was going to have to be going through the same things as Aragon. He's still recalling the moment that he, director Fangmeyer, and uh, another uh, producer, Priscilla John, was casting uh, in England and they were in an audition when 17-year-old Edward Spielers walked in and they all went, whoa, 
He had performed in a few school plays, but never in a movie. But he had that indefinable it quality the production had been searching for. Mm. The audition was sent to Los Angeles and the studio signed off on the choice. It factor, more like shit factor. All right, Jake, (laughs) please. Uh, yeah, it's a very underwhelming. Are you the scenes where he's with Jeremy Irons? Jeremy Irons is the best in this fucking movie. And John Malkovich is in this movie, by the way. John the Malkovich is awful Galvatore. in this movie. Actually, you know what? Uh, he is. Uh, very April, bad if you can throw in the line, you, it's, you can find it on YouTube very easily. All John Malkovich does is sit in a real fake looking throne room and right. just like mutter. He is not good in this movie. I suffer without my stone. Do not. Prolong my suffering. Just like phoning it in. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, but uh, of course, I would probably end up doing the same thing with the, this writing. I mean, it just is so bad. Uh, also, you know, I think I had a real issue in terms of the pacing and everything when it came to like characters being established and relationships being established because you, you, we don't get enough of any of it w- with Aragon and Brom. Aragon and Safira, Aragon and Arya, and Aragon and Murtog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, spoiler alert, like, well, I'll just say Brom, like, goes away, like, three, you know, what, two thirds into the movie. And then Murtog is introduced, who's essentially like the Han Solo of the whole thing. Kind of like a Han Solo-Aragorn hybrid. It's so little, so late with that character. He comes into the movie so fucking late, so unestablished. And it's so jarring to try to be like, oh, now there's this like new guy that we have to now like uh, is just now a major part of this story that I I could give two shits about at this point in the film. And then also, you know, everybody complains. And I agree for a movie about a dragon. Where the fuck is the dragon? Safira, not only do we skip past their whole bonding thing. Uh, when when Severe is younger, but then Severe just goes away for like large chunks of the movie, and I think that's try to to try to establish the Brom Aragon relationship. But it's just too there's just too little, too late of everything. Like just nothing. It's like I feel like going back. It's like just focus on the relationship between Aragon and Sephira. Like make that the thing, you know, or or make it about Brom. And but but. We just, we always just, we never get enough of anything. And I think a lot of that is the the rushed, uh, I don't know why they would make this movie an hour and a half. It just doesn't make any sense to do that. And then they just don't establish anything or explain. Like the whole final battle, You there's no explanation for like, why they're going there, why they're fighting in that battle. Well, that's where the Varden are in the Dwarven City, and Galbatorix follows them there, so now he's going to wipe out the uh, the Varden and Aragon. Uh, and it's a, but basically they just want to have a Helm's Deep. They oh, want to have yeah. a discount Helm's it's Deep. It's so Helm's Deep. Uh, actually, uh, uh, Fangmire was so green that they actually brought in Peter McDonald uh, as the second unit director Dude. just to film that battle sequence. So, like, even that they had, like, he was, I feel like, yeah, he was just, the direct, Fangmire was just not ready for this. The actors are not giving good performances. The, uh, the just production design is all over the place and making really bad decisions. Yes. And they keep, like, evoking better movies the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> There's a scene where the Urgles are like, uh, you know, blacksmithing like crude weapons, getting ready for their big fight. And it's highly evocative of like the Urukai and Saruman's Tower, but it's shittily shot. And like there's only five guys in a room. 
Uh, there's a shot where Aragon is like looking out towards a rising sun before he embarks on his big journey. And it's clearly supposed to be Luke Skywalker uh, looking at the two suns on fucking Tatooine, but it's shittier. There's sweeping aerial shots of Brom and Aragon riding along mountaintops. And that's supposed to be like the Lord of the Rings uh, you know, uh, landscape shots, but it's shittier. Everything is shittier. I couldn't believe how many shot for shot totally redos they did from Lord, either Lord of the Rings or, or Star Wars. It was like kind of impressive how copycat so much of this movie was. There is just not an original thought in it. It's like they they took everything that's like not so great about the book and just expanded on that. Mm-hmm. Like, Yes, obviously this book is being the hero's journey, the chosen one journey thing that we've seen before and even pulls very directly from that stuff. That's the kind of stuff we're trying to like not focus on and not put shine a light on it. Instead, I feel like that's the the light was so brightly put on all of those little glaring things to such a crazy degree and it just super doesn't work. It just it just doesn't work for anybody either new or old to the series. Arya's journey is like a shittier version of Princess Leia in A New Hope where she's like trying to get the MacGuffin to the farm boy and then she's captured and she's tortured, but then she's rescued. But she's just not compelling at all. Uh, They have to introduce all the Varden characters at the last second. Jaiman Hansu just like gets a couple of lines in there. Uh, you know, all of, and all of these characters, if you read the book, are fully fleshed out and have important roles to fill in the later books. And the movie just like blows past them like they were nothing. Um, the other thing, God, it's this making of book is so full of like, oh, we really had to do the universe right. Like we're making our own unique thing when it is so derivative and underwhelming. It's sad. Um, and the main criticism, the main thing that broke all of these a uh, young uh, book fan's heart is that Paolini does have something. He's got juice. The relationship between Safira and Aragon. I'm not going to say a homeschooled kid obsessed with the fact that there's like a magic friend that he has a deep, intimate, uh, magical connection with is some kind of subverted horniness. But it's a female dragon. That's weird. Uh, a lot of lines dedicated to the dragon's beautiful curves and deep, hard blue color. <laughs> Just saying. Just the the wilderness aspects of it. Like his uh, Aragon's life in the small town before the all the action happens is really engaging and really evocative of Paolini's own life. And the scale and beauty of the world that he builds is all just poorly delivered and What's left on the screen is all the derivative stuff, thus reinforcing all the criticisms that his work is super derivative. So it's got to be just like an absolute gut punch that it takes away everything that you liked and leaves only the things that you got shat on for liking about it. Yeah, he definitely and Paolini definitely stays pretty coy about the whole ordeal, but has at least said, you know, he had a pretty limited interaction with. And limited input with the people making this thing. And and he, he kind of leaves it at that. Um, he tried to get in as much input as he could, but they, they took it and ran with it. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's, let's end on a positive note, Jake, please. 
a live action TV series is currently in development for Disney Plus. This time, Christopher Paolini is much more involved in the adaptation as a co-writer and executive producer. He said, this has been a long time coming. Uh, and it was largely due to the uprising of fans to get this thing remade for the screen. None of this would have been possible without everyone who has read the books, supported the tweet storms, and participated in this fandom over the years. So a huge thank you from me to every allegation out there. You brought the thunder. Very much as, uh, insinuating it was really the demand of the fans, outraged at the the poor f- film, uh, the poor product that was the film. Coming back around, I don't know, in a post-Willow TV series world, I wonder if this will have a more of a struggle getting out the gate, uh, because that show didn't really uh, light any fires, I guess, because it only ran for a season, they dropped it, but hopefully this happens. I would like to see this work get, uh, get its due. I mean, it really, really is a shame. I'm terrified that it's going to go the same way as the Netflix Bone series, Yeah, which was, uh, in my recent memory, the other big, rich streaming company promising to deliver on this uh, sweeping epic fantasy with a deep underground vein of fans that have loved this series for decades, only to have it snatched away at the last minute. I, I'm a little more pessimistic about it. Um, also, I can't believe we skipped over the hit song that ends the movie, Avril Lavigne's oh, Keep Holding right. On. April, hit it! <laughs> <laughs> All right, unbelievable. I'm not even going to do an April hit it after that. I want us to sit in that. You're not alone, together we stand I'll be by your side, you know I'll take your hand When it gets cold Thank you everybody for joining us for our Aragon episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, If you'd like to support us further, check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. There you get $5 a month. You get weekly bonus episodes and ad-free episodes from the main feed. Also, at $15 a month, you can join us for our Sunday study session on Discord. Every Sunday we cover, hey, we watched that terrible Aragon movie. Uh, and this last time we actually recorded a full episode <laughs> while we did it, which is actually a bit of an anomaly. But it's always a good time. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Uh, I uh, am streaming uh, Monday through Friday on there. So check me out on there. Jake! Uh, Aragon is just the word dragon with the D turned into an E, literally one letter off in the alphabet. That's weird. Uh, follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung on threads and Instagram at BestJakeYoung. And uh, check out twitch.tv slash PuppetJared. That's my little VTuber channel where I do the flagship stream, The Cartoon Dumpster, a weekly deep dive into the animated oddities of the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Uh, it is a great time. It's kind of like your favorite Saturday morning cartoon block meets Mystery Science Theater 3000. If you like this podcast, you'll probably get a kick out of it. That's every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash puppet Jared. Hell yeah. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on with brizen. Brizinger. Erusen. <laughs> This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.